Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Create Your Own Review button. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome and hello from Buffalo, the home of the internationally acclaimed Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. Researchers, clinicians, policy advocates, and legal professionals, all who genuinely consider the issues facing those impacted by trauma, diligently advance the field's response to those affected. Today's guest, Dr. Judith Herman, asks, when it comes to justice at least, what are the victims most interested in? In this episode, Dr. Herman describes her interest in trauma and recovery by describing an historical evolution of her work that spurred early activism and involvement in the civil rights and women's movement based on her experience in her psychiatric residency. She reviews the experiences that formed her initial understanding of violence and oppression toward women, how her patients responded when she listened to them, and comments on the prevailing treatment paradigm of those days. Dr. Herman discusses the development of her thinking about trauma and recovery and describes what she has and continues to learn about what victims perceive as justice, their idea of healing, forgiveness, and the important relationship between individuals and their communities. Dr. Herman concludes with commentary related to how trauma will be considered in the developing edition of the DSM-5 and her current reflections on the changes she sees in the trauma field. Dr. Judith Herman is Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of Training for the Victims Violence Program at Cambridge Hospital in Massachusetts. Dr. Herman is a leading author, clinician, and expert in trauma and abuse. She is the author of numerous articles and books, including the classic Trauma and Recovery and Father and Daughter Incest. Dr. Lisa Butler is Associate Professor at the UB School of Social Work, and she interviewed Dr. Herman by telephone. Hello, my name is Dr. Lisa Butler, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Buffalo. It is my distinct pleasure and honor today to be speaking with Dr. Judith Herman. Dr. Herman is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of training for the Victims of Violence program at Cambridge Hospital in Massachusetts. Dr. Herman is a leading and very influential expert on trauma and abuse. She co-founded the Victims of Violence program at Cambridge Hospital 25 years ago, And she is also the author of numerous articles and of award-winning books, including Trauma and Recovery, originally published in 1991 by Basic Books, with the second edition published in 97, and also Father and Daughter Incest, that was published by Harvard University Press in 1981, with a new edition in 2000. Dr. Herman, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in our podcast series. Well, thank you for having me. It is my distinct pleasure and honor to be speaking with you. Thank you. So today, I'd like to speak with you about your current work, but also some reflections on the field of trauma and your views on the evolution of your own professional work and activism. 
So let's start with that last topic. It seems to me that people who work in trauma have often had librarians that they see as influential in seeding their interest in the field. Uh, do you think this is true for you too? Oh, absolutely. I think I came to this work from the civil rights movement and the women's movement, and I had the good fortune, I guess, to be participating in a consciousness raising group at the same time as I was doing my psychiatric residency training. And so I was able to listen to my patients' stories, I think, differently because of the way people were sharing their stories in the in the women's group and um, and the way that we were able to understand our various experiences in the light of kind of social analysis of dominance and subordination. And so when my first two patients, inpatients, were women who'd made suicide attempts in adult life that seemed to be very immediately related to their histories of abuse in childhood and as well as domestic violence as adults. It just all came together. And one thing led to another. I've been working in this field ever since. I think we kind of celebrated our 25th anniversary of the Victims of Violence Program partly by doing a V-Day reading that was open to the public and many of our staff and trainees participated in this re reading as well as activists from other parts of the community, and it was a wonderful celebration. It sounds like it. I guess I, I'm intrigued by your comment about your training. I'm wondering, you know, how it might have diverted your course. I mean, what do you think it added to what you were seeing and how you were thinking? What I was hearing from my supervisor, I mean, one woman took a, an overdose because it was the only way she could think of to escape from a domestic violence situation. There was no shelters then. We were just at that point of beginning to understand the prevalence of violence against women. None of that research had been done. Nobody, certainly there was no concept of post-traumatic stress disorder. That was something that was being developed mainly by the Vietnam vets who had come back and said, we're home, but Vietnam is still with us, still in us, and we live it every day. So here was a woman who had, was fleeing an abusive man. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I mean, the, the, the inpatient unit really served as a shelter for her because when the perpetrator, the abuser, made the mistake of coming on the unit, he not only threatened her and me, but he, had the, he was foolish enough to threaten the chief of the unit, who was a man, and he got... Well, the police were there in no time, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was a little bit of a dramatization of male power and authority and uh, how, it, how that hierarchy works. So here was a woman who had endured years of abuse, as it turned out, because she felt she, this was what she deserved. She'd been abused as a child, and her shame and humiliation and sense of degradation that came from that experience of early childhood abuse is what allowed her to submit to repeated victimization and what made her so desperate that she wanted to end her life. And talking about it and having someone bear witness to her and validate her and in a respectful way that didn't shame and degrade her 
uh, was a whole new experience for her. She started to get better. Also, seeing someone set limits with this man who had been torturing her was a wonderful experience for her. Uh, I wonder if that experience um, was at odds with experiences it had with other professionals at the time. Oh, I, I don't even know if she'd ever sought any professional help before. I mean, this had gone on for years, and I don't think she'd gotten any help. She had grown children. As you see, that experience still stays with me. I, but the connection between the childhood abuse and the current situation, which seemed so apparent to me, was not something that would have been, shall I say, emphasized in the field. There was no awareness, really none. Uh, the only, uh, you know, the dominant paradigm in those days was still psychoanalysis. And in that paradigm, women were prone to fantasize about these things. Really, it, it was a whole other mindset then. So it just sounds like it had a tremendous impact on your views, your evolving views at the time. And then after I finished my residency, I joined with a, a group of women. We had this fantasy that we were going to create alternative institutions and do things differently. And we formed a, a mental health collective that, and we attached ourselves to a women's free clinic. And so I continued to see many, many survivors of violence against women, of gender-based violence. And we began to understand both its prevalence and its role in the subordination of women. Do you feel your views have changed over time or evolved in some way from those initial perspectives? Well, evolved certainly, changed not a lot. I think most of what I wrote in the 80s and 90s has held up remarkably well and about both trauma and recovery. Uh, there's been tremendous outpouring of research since then. But I don't think the newer research has changed the basic understanding that we have of what oppression does to people. I mean, we do think of this work as part of a kind of democracy movement, if you will, or part of human rights activism, certainly part of feminist activism, because, I mean, what we've discovered is that violence is violence, whether it's the hidden gender-based violence that's endemic in patriarchal societies throughout the world, or whether it's the epidemic violence of warfare. And it has similar effects on people uh, worldwide. And what seems to help also is some kind of social support and acknowledgement for survivors. And that basic outline hasn't changed a lot. I mean, where I've gone with it more recently has, there's several directions, but one has to do with really thinking about not only psychological healing for individuals um, in terms of what the mental health professions can offer, but also the kind of healing that needs to happen between individuals and their communities. And so I've been working on a new book that I'm tentatively calling Justice from the Victim's Perspective. And I've been interviewing people about what justice would look like if victims were ever consulted about their views, which they tend not to be. Do you have findings so far that you're prepared to share? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I've, it's a preliminary kind of thing because I've just interviewed 22 people and they're all survivors of sexual or domestic violence in adults. Are they all women? For childhood. No, there are some men too. But what seems to be surprising, I think, is that the main thing that I'm hearing from the survivors is that they're not that concerned about the perpetrator. The focus of the justice system as we have it now is a kind of warfare between prosecutor and defendant. And the victim is relevant only as a, as a witness and really marginalized in the process. And it's all about punishment. If the defendant is convicted, meeting out punishment that is appropriate to the crime. And what I found with the victims is that they're just not that interested in punishment. What they're interested in is community acknowledgement, both of the facts of what happened to them and of the harm that was done, and community denunciation of the crime and affirmation of the victim, a kind of a vindication, if you will, rather than a vindictive stance, even though the, the words are similar. What vindication seemed to mean for survivors were, was a kind of a healing of the relationship between the community and the victim. The victim who had been isolated and shamed and dishonored by the crime wants to have her honor restored or his honor restored. And apologies and restitution, yes. What about acknowledgement by the perpetrator of the harm he or she did? That would be nice. A lot of people, you know, but that would be kind of extra. A lot of people... I asked people about apologies and whether they wanted to hear of an apology. And what they mainly said was that a real apology would be the most wonderful thing they could imagine. An apology that was based on genuine remorse and genuine understanding of the harm done and a wish to make things right. That would be great. People who were capable of these crimes in the first place, they didn't really think were too likely to come to that place. And what they really did not want to hear were the politician-style apologies. Well, if anybody was harmed, of course, you know, if if she's still whining about it now, you know, that kind of, well, I I suppose that that kind, if anybody was harmed, that kind of apology they didn't have any use for. And and they they were also not all that interested in forgiveness. You know, they didn't want um, revenge, but they also didn't want forgiveness. They thought that many people thought that the push for forgiveness on the part of survivors was letting society off too easy. It was, as as one formerly battered woman who had become a, a woman named Anne-Marie Hunter, who was formerly a battered woman and is now a minister who directs an organization called Safe Havens Interfaith Partner against domestic violence, said that she just thought the expectation of forgiveness was an additional injustice imposed upon victims for the comfort and convenience of others. She, and she hated the word closure. She said it, it's a lot more difficult for society to take on the task of actually confronting perpetrators 
when the crimes are endemic and partially condoned within the society. So she said, you know, rather than moving the victims to forgiveness, we need to be thinking about moving offenders to contrition and change behavior. And that's much, much harder to do. These victims sound very wise in their perspectives on justice. But, and I wonder, did you find any evidence that it relates to the time since these events were happening? Because it sounds like a sort of mature view. It could well be. It could well be. And I, as I say, this was a convenient sample of people who I just found through victim advocates or people who heard me speak or uh, someone who knew somebody who knew somebody. It was not at all a random sample or a representative of anything, um, though I tried to make it have some diversity in terms of um, ethnic background and so so forth. Um, So yes, this may have to do with people who and I, and I wanted to speak to people who had been through the criminal justice process or civil justice process or who had made an attempt to resolve these matters with the perpetrators more privately. Um, so yes, these, in, in the main, these were people not fresh from the, from the hurt. These were people who had really struggled to come to terms with it and, and yes, had a lot of wisdom to share. I, I want to share one other quote which uh, just reflects the wisdom that you were speaking about and, and summed things up so nicely for me. She said, uh, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. And in that sense, in the sort of Zen sense of letting go of, of anger and grief, then that was somebody something that every everybody wanted. So yes, if uh, it, it might be a very different story if I interviewed people who are right in the midst of things and you know in a crisis situation or shortly after. And and also, uh, I think it would be different if I mainly interviewed family members of survivors. I interviewed one couple where. Um, she had been raped by a former boyfriend who basically was just angry that she broke up with him and lured her to his apartment uh, on the pretext, I think, of returning some of her things and raped her. And both of both members of the couple were certainly struggling with, with revenge fantasies, but he really wanted to kill the guy, whereas she felt much, her feelings were much more conflicted you know, um, and with him, he just sort of felt sorry that he hadn't killed it already, as he said. He didn't want to even call it a person. I heard that from another incest survivor, for example, who said, you know, if if I ever found out he did that to my children, I would want to kill him. But if it was just me, just me, then I would just want him exposed. I would want people to see him for who he is. And that would, that felt like um, enough, punishment enough. It's complicated. What can I tell you? (laughs) That's absolutely fascinating. And it sounds like the study is going to be the basis in part of a new book, you think? I hope. It's been sitting on the shelf for a while. I I find it kind of in, in my dotage, I'm finding it much harder to 
write and teach and take care of business all at the same time. And I kind of I puzzle about how I've managed to do that in earlier life. But yes, sooner or later, I hope. Wonderful. We'll look forward to seeing it, certainly. On another topic that I, I actually... I'm very interested to hear your views on. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is currently being oh, advised. Yes. Yes. The DSM-5. Yes. The very controversial DSM-5. Yes. And I, I just, I guess I wanted to, if you don't mind sharing, your views on some of these proposed changes and omissions and various other things. I don't want to speak more generally about the DSM-5 process and whether it is you know, either, either the most open and transparent process they've ever had or uh, according to the psychiatrists who headed up both the DSM-3 and DSM-4 productions, they've been very critical of this process. I don't speak as a, I speak as a semi-insider. I am not on the PTSD committee working subgroup of the anxiety disorders work group, but I am a, I was vetted as a um, contributing expert. And to that end, I had to sign, I had to disclose all my financial interests and they did screen out anybody who had any financial interests over a certain cutoff, I think $10,000 or something like that. Financial interests Um, being drug Support, drug, drug money, money support. or yeah, drug companies or investment in some product that they would then be sort of pitching. The product that I'm invested in is more of intellectual property, I suppose you'd say, and and I'm really hoping that within the DSM-5 now we will we'll get recognition of a broader spectrum of of traumatic disorders than what we have. Now, I think the the definition of PTSD that we came up with for the first DSM-3 and then DSM-4 is quite narrowly focused, I think, on single impact trauma, mainly um, focused on adults, what happens to people with disasters or auto accidents or combat, short exposure to combat. I'm not sure... When you get the kind of prolonged exposure that our current soldiers are enduring with repeated tours of duty and canceled leaves in between and all that sort of thing, you begin to see the kind of complex post-traumatic disorder that I've written about. And But particularly when you have prolonged and repeated trauma and exposure early in life, childhood, adolescence, you begin to see impact on identity formation, on uh, relationships with others, on a foreshortened sense of future. That and and those are the symptoms that really bring people in to treatment, along with a very tenacious kind of depression that doesn't respond very well to conventional, certainly psychopharmacology. Um, but it's the interpersonal difficulties and the identity contamination, the sense of dishonor that really haunts people and brings them finally to seek treatment. And and I think we need to understand much more fully how to address those issues rather than simply thinking of 
post-traumatic stress as, as a form of anxiety dis- disorder. I mean, I think it is that, but it's also much more than that when you have this prolonged and repeated trauma that you see also with torture survivors or people who've been in concentration camps, that kind of thing. So uh, that's what that was what I was asked to speak to the committee about. I, I wrote up a position paper for them about complex PTSD and why I thought that should be recognized as an entity uh, within the trauma spectrum. And the the jury is out. Yes. Have you had any reassurances that they're going to include that? Well, uh, the only reassurance I've had is that the issue is still under consideration and does seem as though my input has been received and so far it's kind of communications I've received thereafter are, we have received your input, thank you very much. We'll call you when we need you. So (laughs) that's where it is. And, you know, there's also been, I think, a lot of interest, not only in this country, but worldwide in this issue. And so I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, when you get into the inner politics of it, it gets very confusing. But I'm hopeful that it will prevail on its merits. I hope so, too. I guess my fantasy was that there would be a sort of trauma spectrum category and that all sorts of disorders that are now almost randomly distributed around the DSM could be gathered together under that category. But I'm not seeing any evidence of that so far. Well, you know, people have their, their kind of turf and they don't want things rearrange too much because then it might invade their turf. It's, I mean, I, I know that sounds really silly, but it gets like that um, sometimes. I think that was the reason that the complex PTSD or disorders of extreme stress concept was not recognized in DSM-4 because I was on the PTSD committee for, for DSM-4 and we did field trials that I thought gave us lots of documentation, lots of evidence for the the construct, the validity of the construct, and we published some of those findings. But I think, you see, if it's not a clean anxiety disorder and it has overlap with cold personality disorder or what's called dissociative disorder or somatization disorder, those are different silos, and there are a lot of people within the profession, I think, within who who feel un, uncomfortable with that. They're looking for diagnostic entities that are clean, and this is not a clean category. It it it's it doesn't come. It comes out of very dirty experience, and it isn't a clean category. I wonder if it's also the fact that these these various areas don't want to lose a diagnosis from their area to a new nosological category. That's kind of what I mean. If it turns out that the majority, maybe 85% or so, but not all patients with, say, borderline personality disorder have a, a childhood trauma history, childhood abuse history, well, does that justify rethinking the concept of borderline personality disorder? I certainly think so. On the other hand, there will be people who say, well, what about the 15% who don't have a trauma history? And that's a valid argument. 
I'm interested in your views on the sort of the future of diagnosis around trauma. Do you think that sort of specializing into more subtyping, including simple versus complex and perhaps very other variants, is the way it, it'll invariably go? I wouldn't venture to predict. I do think, though, I mean, the other thing that's hopeful is that there is a mandate to conform the American psychiatrics manual more to the international classification of diseases to sort of be more part of a kind of international effort. And in the ICD-10, there is a category that comparable really to what I've been talking about as complex PTSD in terms of personality change after extreme trauma. And and that's kind of what I've been talking about. So I think that will be a reason to kind of push in that direction. And since the world continues to generate horrors on an almost unimaginable scale, and since violence against women seems to be right up there, uh, we now have a special rapporteur, you know, in in the United Nations on violence against women. It happened 15 years ago that was designated, probably in Beijing. And so we now have wonderful international voices of women saying, you know, making reports saying violence against women is probably the most common human rights violation in the world. And so I think there's a consciousness raising that's going on worldwide. It's not just a Western phenomenon now. And and I put my faith in that. Well, as long as there's a worldwide women's movement, one has reason to hope. I agree. In addition to that, what other important developments have you seen since the publication of your of Trauma and Recovery in 2000? What do you think are the most important things that have changed in our field? The exciting things that have been happening in the field, in one sense, are more the biologic things, that all the brain research that basically ends up saying, you know what, there's an actual neurophysiologic basis for the clinical entities that we, clinical symptoms that we see. And we can even take pictures of that. So people get very excited about that. And I, I agree that it's exciting. But in the end, it doesn't, I don't think any of that exactly tells us things we didn't already know as clinicians. I, I know that sounds like clinical hubris, and I guess it is. It's, of course, there's going to be a neural pathway for what we see. And Seeing it more precisely does help us think more precisely. But in the end, knowing that there's an amygdala that is this sort of like the the smoke detector for threat and fear, and that when it goes off, your frontal lobes kind of tend to shut down in terms of you do an immediate threat assessment and you get ready for fight or flight, but you don't really kind of think about, well, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, that's that's a, a leisure activity for when you're safe. So yes, we once we see those pathways in action, it helps us be a little more precise about our clinical thinking. So yes, that's an exciting development. But I guess what I find more exciting is the perfecting of different treatment models that show that can be generalized, that can be manualized, that can be researched properly so that you have 
valid outcome data. Um, I have to say most of the interesting work in that regard is happening in Europe, not here, because the models that are being supported by NIMH here are very short-term, very simplistic cognitive behavioral models. Whereas the Europeans, uh, for example, who have published amazing treatment outcome data for borderline personality disorder with a manualized psychodynamic treatment that can be taught and um, that is subtle and that meets people where they are and honors the importance of relationship as central to healing um, and the importance of group treatment as well as individual treatment. Which echoes what you were saying about, in some ways, about the, the issue of justice from a victim's perspective, the need for the sort of social context for healing. And you have all, so much data now that says one of the most powerful predictors of recovery is social support, because lots of people recover without ever getting any kind of formal mental health treatment. But in that regard, I do want to mention that we have a book forthcoming this year, later this year, from a group of us at the Victims of Violence program. It's called the Trauma Recovery Group, a Practitioner's Guide. It's a guide to a model for a group treatment for people who are, you know, who have complex trauma, who are in the, the middle stage of recovery, the trauma-focused stage. There's people who've gotten reasonably stable and whose safety and self-care is reasonably well-established and, and who are ready to do trauma-focused work in depth. And we've created a, a model where we feel people can can bear witness to one another and can be healers to one another as well as being healed. And that is also a, an enormous aid to recovery, to feel that you have something to give to other survivors. Is It is a, it's a gift uh, and, I was going to say, a blessing. But I think people who have led these groups are incredibly excited about it. And the thing I'm most excited about is that I'm not the first author. Michaela Mendelssohn, who was one of my former psychology postdoctoral fellows and then became a research coordinator for the Victims of Violence Program and is now has her own private practice as well. But she's the first author. And Emily Schatzow and I, who developed the model initially, are kind of the old, what shall we say, the old warriors. And then we have three other collaborators from the program and the book will be out, I think, just in time for the traumatic stress meetings this November, we hope. Oh, that's wonderful. Is is Harvard Press publishing uh, no, it? Or? It's uh, Guilford. Guilford, okay. They well, have they have a quite remarkable line of publications in the trauma field, actually. They've been a very sophisticated and, I think, successful publisher in the field, and they've published a number of works that... I think are have been very valuable. Frank Putnam's work, Marilyn Kreutzer's work, uh, among others. 
so we're happy to have them as our publisher. Well, I'm delighted to hear there's a new publication coming out. Well, I'm I'm just noticing the clock, and um, I guess I I shan't keep you any longer. But um, do you have any final thoughts or reflections that you'd like to share? I do think that speaking as an old warrior, the transformations have been remarkable, and they do give me reason to be hopeful. I think as long as and and we do have a kind of feminist presence now in the field that we didn't have 25 years ago or certainly 35 years ago. You had a great deal to do with starting that with your book, Trauma Recovery, sort of establishing that as the setting and the backdrop for this field. I always thought of it as being part of a movement. It can be kind of facile and trite to say that at times, but it was very real to me and so to the extent that that become part of the culture, I remain hopeful. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us to discuss your tremendous body of work. Well, thank you for having me. It was my distinct pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Judith Herman discuss justice from the perspective of trauma victims on Living Proof, the podcast series at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.